So today, if you have your Bible with you, you can turn with me to uh, Hebrews. I was about to say Acts, sorry. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 2. We were in Acts for a long time. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 2. We're continuing our journey through the book of Hebrews. If you're visiting with us, we're glad that you're here. And uh, this is our practice, is to go straight through entire books of the Bible. We don't skip anything. We don't skip a single word, single verse. Uh, we go through uh, verse by verse, section by section. And we, are, we come to find ourselves today in chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 5 through 9. Now, verses 5 through 18 are actually one unit. So really, it's one big thought that's being given in uh, verses 5 through 18. But there's so much there, we're going to take it uh, in two sermons. Otherwise, y'all are going to be here till 2 or 3 o'clock this afternoon. So we're going to just do verses 5 through 9 in chapter 2. So remember where we're at in the book. In chapter 1, the author of Hebrews gave us this vivid description of the glorious Jesus, the Son. We were told that, that He is the radiance of God's glory in chapter 1, the very beginning. He told us that Jesus, the Son, is the exact imprint of God's nature. And He told us the very first thing He said in chapter 1, verse 1, was in these last days, God has spoken to us in His Son or by His Son. And then the rest of chapter 1, he took us on a journey through seven Old Testament passages. We looked at those two weeks ago that demonstrate from the Old Testament that the Son is superior to the angels. And at the end of that section, the end of chapter 1, he quoted Psalm 110 at the end of chapter 1 in Hebrews saying that the Father said to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. And the point of chapter 1, and really all of chapter 2 as well, is that Jesus, the Son, is superior to the angels. He reigns on the throne, and the angels are servants and ministers. It says they're out, go, they go out to serve those who are to inherit salvation in the last verse of chapter 1. And then we began chapter 2 last week, and chapter 2 began with a warning. Since Jesus is the final word from God in salvation history, he is far superior to the angelic messengers of God who brought his word from old, then we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift from it. That was the beginning of chapter 2. Drifting, if you remember, was a real temptation because the Hebrew Christians that, that the author is writing to they were suffering persecution. They were, they were in severe hardship because of their faith in Jesus. They were being tempted to go back to Judaism. They were Hebrews that had converted to Christ and they were being tempted to go back to the old ways, the old religion, back to the synagogue, back to the temple, back to the sacrifices and the high priest. Why? So they could spare themselves this life of trial that they were going through. This persecution, this suffering that they were enduring. And the writer of, of Hebrews pleads with them in the first four verses of chapter 2, don't drift from him. Don't go back to trusting in religion or your works or your, the religious ceremony or the things of the world for that matter. This is a very convicting warning. Don't drift. Let's pay closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift from it. We saw it last week. It's convicting because we have a tendency to drift. But think about this for a moment. When that call, when that warning, when that 
admonition. Don't drift from him. Pay closer attention to what you've heard so you don't drift. When that warning lands on those whose days and nights are filled with suffering, when it lands on those who are enduring hardship day after day, opposition, trial, suffering, because they are professing Jesus and following Jesus, when that call to, to hold on to Christ lands on those who know that life would be easier if we just went back to the synagogue and the temple with our families, you can imagine what you might think. You know, look, I hear what you're saying. Don't drift. Hold fast to Christ. And I do believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But you don't understand what life is like here. I mean, I believe all of that. But how can we stand firm against the prospect of a life filled with misery? How can we endure hardships like these knowing that this is just how life's going to be until we die? I mean, you're talking about the grand story of God's redemption and all of his enemies will be put as a footstool for his feet. And, but look around you, man. I mean, we're just insignificant little people caught in the tidal wave of all this. And to tell you the truth, I don't see much glory. You know, how are we supposed to stand against the whole world? pressing in on us. And what complicates it even more is our own flesh tempting us to move away. The rest of chapter 2, the writer is going to show the Hebrews and us that they are not left adrift in God's grand purposes. In fact, just the opposite is true. The Son of God took upon himself a real human nature and became just like you wading through this fallen creation suffering, its trial, its hardship, even all the way to death to bring salvation, to bring victory, and to bring a world to come that's far better than any rest or comfort that we can chase after in this life. Despite the fact that this life is indeed filled with trial, filled with suffering, filled with sin, and despite the fact that, yes, the reality of death still looms over us, the glorious Son of God has conquered it all. And this is why we must not drift from what we have heard. So in chapter 1, Hebrews said, Jesus superior to the angels. He is on the throne at the right hand of the Father. All his enemies will be placed upon, under his feet. Then chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, pay attention. Don't drift from him. Now he continues in verse 5 saying this, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Literally, it says, nothing not subjected to him. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This section 
shows us how Christ fulfills the ultimate purpose for mankind and what it means for us today as we endure trial and suffering. The argument begins by showing us God's intent for humanity. He says in verse 5, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. What's the world to come? Well, we talked about it the last couple of weeks. It's when, it's when all Christ's enemies are placed under his feet. Not just spiritual enemies or human enemies, but all his enemies, sin and death and all of the effects of the fall are placed under his feet. It's when, it's when there's a new heaven and a new earth, as it says in scripture, where there's no more sin, no more death, no more suffering, and all creation is returned to what God intended it to be in the Garden of Eden. Here, Hebrews tells us, in that world to come, it's not angels that are given dominion. And to prove his point, he quotes Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. In fact, we read those uh, as we were worshiping in song earlier. He says in verse 6, he introduces it by saying it has been testified somewhere. And then this is Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything in subjection under his feet. In this psalm that's quoted, it's the psalm of David. David is in awe of the vast creation of God. And he's marveling that in this grand, huge creation... God cares for insignificant human beings. In Psalm 8, David says, when I, look at your, when I look at your heavens, the work of your hands, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? The glorious God of all creation is mindful of insignificant little people. But that's not all, he says. In verse 7, David is also amazed that, that out of all this vast creation, God, he says, crowned mankind with glory and honor. Made him a little lower than the angels, for a little while lower than the angels. But he says, you've crowned him with glory and honor. He's referring to the fact that humans and humans alone in all of creation, including angelic beings and spiritual beings, it is mankind that is made in the image of God alone. Humans are indeed, we are for a little while lower than the angels, but we are crowned with the glory of being the image of God. That's what David is referencing in the psalm. And not only that, but God also gave humanity dominion over the creation. He says he subjected all things under his feet. Psalm 8 is referring to what God said in Genesis chapter 1. When God said, uh, God said then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over the earth, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. The author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 8, verse 4 and 6, 4 through 6, to prove that God didn't subject the world to come to angels. It isn't angels that are created in God's image. It isn't angels that are given dominion over creation. It isn't angels crowned with glory and honor as God's image bearers to spread his image over creation. It is humanity. But if you look around, things aren't yet perfected as God intended. Instead of ruling as, as God's image bearer in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned. 
They tried to overrule God and disobeyed him. You know the story. Commanded them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They did so, thinking they would be like God because of the temptation of the serpent. In that action, all of creation fell under a curse. And now sin and suffering and tragedy and death is a reality. It entered into this creation. So while the psalm that is quoted here is about humanity in general, you care for man, you gave man dominion over creation, it was clear even in David's time when the psalm was penned, it's celebrating what humanity ought to be. But it's not realized yet. It looks forward to what humanity will be in the world to come. That's why David, way back when he penned the psalm, says, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. By quoting this psalm here, the author of Hebrews sees the fulfillment and the completion of what humanity is supposed to be in Christ. Now, we'll get to that in a moment. But first, he shows us that this is not the way things are now. God's intent has not been realized by humanity. So he says, now in putting everything in subjection, y'all with me? Everybody good? Y'all quiet? Okay. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. What this is, the writer of Hebrews is commenting on the last line of the psalm that he just quoted. Y'all with me? Everybody tracking? Yeah, four of you tracking? I'm getting somewhere. Stay with me. He says, God's intent in giving dominion to mankind was that nothing was outside of man's control. Literally, it says, nothing is not subjected to him. He's talking about God gave man dominion in the beginning. There was a clear mandate in Genesis. Humanity is to be God's image bearers. In perfect relationship with God, given dominion over a perfect creation... And are commanded, we were commanded in the garden to manage the creation, guard it, to keep it, to, to spread his image, to be fruitful, multiply, spread his image all over the earth. And the author of Hebrews is confirming what the psalm just said. He put everything into subjection under his feet. But then he recognizes that's not the way things look right now. He says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Think about the persecuted and suffering Hebrew Christians reading this. Okay, you're quoting the psalm. You're saying he hasn't, he hasn't subjected the world to come to angels. And then you quote this psalm about how he cares for mankind and he loves mankind. He crowned mankind with glory and honor. This is what David was saying in the psalm. He put all things under his feet, gave him dominion over creation. But look around you. Does it look like we have dominion? We don't even have dominion over our own flesh, over our own hearts, much less all of creation. We don't have dominion over the hurricanes or the tornadoes. We don't have dominion over the viruses or the bacteria. We don't have dominion over the evil rulers who persecute us and subject us to pain and suffering. We certainly don't have dominion over death to keep our loved ones from dying or to keep ourselves from dying. Everything hasn't been put in subjection to God's image bearers. I mean, you're talking about stuff I don't see anywhere. What is man that you care for him? I'm sorry, I don't see that. I'm sure, I, I sure don't see a crown of glory and honor in my life. I don't see anything but pain and hardship. 
And even if I can find a way to endure all of this and not drift from what I have heard, death's coming for us all. Where is the glory and crown? I, I sure don't see it. Hebrews acknowledges this saying, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. But look at what we do see. God's intent for mankind is fulfilled in Christ. He says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, I like the ESV, but the English translation really obscures the grand statement that's made right here. At the end of verse 8, he says, we don't see everything in subjection to him. And then in verse 9, literally it says, but one who was a little while made lower than the angels, we see Jesus. That's what it says. We don't see everything in subjection right now. We don't see creation the way it should be. We don't see man's place in creation as it should be in perfection without sin and without suffering. And what, but we do see Jesus. This statement, this is the first mention of the name Jesus in the book of Hebrews. It's meant to be emphatic. We don't see things right in the world yet. We don't see creation and our place in it as it was intended to be. But we see Jesus crowned with glory. He has redeemed what was lost in the garden. He is crowned with glory and honor in every way right now at the Father's right hand. In verse 9, the writer uses the exact same two phrases that are quoted from David's psalm to describe Jesus. He was made a little lower than the angels. He was crowned, is crowned with glory and honor. And he says, this is all about Jesus. We see him. He has accomplished this. And by understanding this explanation in verse 9, then we're able to back up and see why the writer of Hebrews quoted Psalm 8 in the first place. David is talking about humanity. He's talking about man being made in God's image. But the writer of Hebrews quotes this not about humanity in general. It's about Jesus. I lost y'all a little bit at the beginning. I knew and I thought, well, you'll get there eventually. <laughs> Verse 9 explains it. It's about Jesus. He is crowned with glory. God has subjected the world to come to Jesus, to the Son in Jesus Christ, God's original intention for humanity has been achieved and it has been fulfilled. It is a reality. Though we still live in a fallen world, Jesus has fulfilled God's mandate. God, the eternal son, took on a human nature, lived in this fallen world among fallen mankind. He suffered and was tempted as all people are, yet he never sinned. He kept the covenant mandate of God where Adam failed. He gave his life as a perfect sacrifice, as a substitute to endure the death that you deserve for your sin. And because of the suffering of death, as the perfect lamb of God, as the perfect Adam, his sacrifice is accepted in our place. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven as God and man. And the father said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
We don't see everything the way it should be in our lives or in this world yet, but we see Jesus exalted. We see him waiting till all his enemies are put under his feet. We see him crowned with glory and honor. But look at it in verse 9. It says Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. That raises a question in our minds, doesn't it? Now hold on. We're told in the beginning of this book that the sun is the radiance of God's glory. We know that, that the Son is the eternal God, existing as the second person of the triune God from eternity past. He's always had glory. He's always had honor. He's always had kingship as the God of the universe. He's always been God, worthy of praise and honor because of who he is. How can the writer say Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor now because of the suffering of death. I hope you know the answer by now if you've hung around here any time. The divine Son of God has always been Lord and King. By His nature, glorious God, worthy of honor. But now, God the Son is also a man. From the moment the Son of God took upon Himself a human nature, He would forever more be God and man. Jesus suffered and died as a real human being. He rose from the grave as a real human being. And because of his perfect life and sacrifice, he has been crowned now with glory and honor at the right hand of the Father, not just as God, but as man. That's a lot more amazing than your faces are telling me. I remember having kind of like a, wasn't like a real debate, but just, I guess you'd call it an argument, uh, with a guy who said that Jesus really didn't sacrifice anything for your salvation because he is, is God in the flesh, and so he knew that he was going to die from beginning to end, and we know that's true. He knew that he was going to rise from the grave from beginning to end, and we know that's true. He knew he was going to ascend back to the same glory that he had before the world was, and we know that that's true. So he said Jesus knew that by dying, he was going to rise again, and he was going to go right back to where he was, and things are going to be right back to the way they were. The reality is things didn't go back to the way they were. Do you understand the sacrifice that he made? He took on a human nature. The son who existed in eternity past as God took on a human nature. And then from that moment on, for the rest of eternity, he is God and man. He will forever be. Paul says way, way after the resurrection, way after the ascension, Paul says the fullness of God dwells bodily in Jesus Christ. Paul uses present tense right now. As he is enthroned in heaven at the right hand of the Father, he is God and man. Listen, do you understand? For the first time, for the first time in all of eternity, a human being 
has accomplished the purpose and the covenant of God and has taken his seat on the throne of glory. A real human being has been given the kingdom and dominion over all as it was intended to be in the beginning. Through his death and resurrection and ascension, Jesus has fulfilled and completed the purpose for which humanity was created. He succeeded where the first Adam failed. He's conquered sin where you and I and all of us have failed. He's given himself to death, providing a sacrifice so that those who trust in him are released from the grip of death's sting, freed from the punishment of our sin, and united with him in his glory. Seeing Jesus, we don't see the way things are supposed to be yet around us in the world or even in our own hearts, our own lives. But we see Jesus. We see him crowned with glory and honor. We see him who has fulfilled it all. And why? Why is that such good news for us as we're suffering through the drudgery of this life, suffering through the trials and the hardships and the persecution and sin and all of the things that go with it, ultimately even death still present in this fallen world? Why is that such good news? Will we see Jesus crowned? We see him on his throne? I mean, what does that even mean? How does that encourage me? Because all those who are united to Christ by the grace of God through faith are crowned with glory and honor with Jesus. The Son of God became man. It says at the last part of verse 9 that he might taste death for everyone. He gave himself as a substitute for every sinner who trusts in Jesus And by the grace of God, through faith alone, a sinful human being is united with Jesus Christ so that the Father, looking over the judgment bar, no longer sees a sinful, fallen, defiled sinner. In Christ, he sees the righteousness of his Son. The blood of his son. Do you understand what Jesus being crowned with glory and honor means? It means that if you died right now while I'm talking, some of you, it looks like it might be from boredom. (laughs) (laughs) I got to yell more to get you involved, I guess. I don't know. If you die, if your heart stopped beating right now, you would stand before God just like all of us would. And you would recognize, you would recognize your sin. Not just the bad things that you've done. I mean, let's pretend like none of us have ever done anything bad or wrong. We've never broken God's law in the sense of doing what God commanded us not to do. We have all have. But let's pretend for a minute we haven't. We haven't done everything right. It's not just don't do bad things. It's you have to do everything exactly right, exactly perfect. And the quintessential law, you've heard it from me a hundred million times. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus says the greatest command. You must love the Lord your God in the way that he deserves to be loved with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, every moment of every single day. And to fail to do that at any point in time is sin. You'll stand before God and you'll look at your life and he'll show you your life and and you'll be just like the rest of us. We'll all say, God, I'm a sinner. I've failed you in so many ways. But the ones in Christ, ones who've been born again, God will look at you and he'll say, all I see is my son's blood. 
All I see is my son's righteousness covering your life. Listen, the son of God tasted death for everyone. We are seen, if we're born again, we're seen by God, by the Father, the judge of all the earth, as being in Christ. The Bible says believers are co-heirs with Christ. What he has accomplished, what he has inherited, becoming a man, living the perfect life, dying on the cross, rising from the grave, ascending to the throne, what he has inherited, he's given to us who are united with him. The scriptures say we will reign with him. God's purpose for mankind has not failed. It's been perfectly accomplished by a man who is God in the flesh. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, and it truly is. But it is also true that we don't yet see the total fulfillment of what Jesus has done in the creation yet either. The world's still fallen. His kingdom has been inaugurated in his death, burial, ascension, resurrection, resurrection, ascension. But we wait for the consummation. We wait for the new heavens, the new earth, when, when this glorious reign will be totally and completely perfected. And there's no more sin. There's no more death. There's no more suffering and trial. Every tear will be wiped away. And that's the point the writer of Hebrews is making in these verses. When he began, he said, it's not to angels that he has subjected the world to come. Rule of the world to come has already been given to the Son, who is both God and man. And now, the point of this section is revealed. It's to the Son that he subjected the world to come. So yes, we don't see... We don't yet see Jesus reigning in all parts of the creation. We still see the fall. We still see sin. We still see it in our own hearts. Things are still not yet what they're intended to be. We don't see it yet. But we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor as God and man. And as sinners united to him, the promise of that glory and that honor, it's ours as well. As we consider Jesus, we see him with the eyes of faith knowing that the last chapter of our own story is not finished yet. There is a world to come. So to this persecuted church, who was no doubt crying out to God for deliverance from all of their suffering, from all of their trial, as they were being persecuted for following Jesus, and they were being drawn away by the temptation to go back and to, and to forsake following Christ so that life would be easier and so they wouldn't have to endure this hardship and this suffering and this trial. And they're crying out, no doubt, to God for deliverance from these things. And it feels like they're forgotten. God is not answering their cry. This suffering is not going away. This trial isn't stopping. It feels to them like God's purposes have left them behind in this big grand story that we are talking about. God seems silent to their cries, but God has answered. Chapter 1, verse 1. In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. We don't yet see a world without persecution and suffering and trial and sin and hardship and dying and parting and all of those things. We don't see the promised glory that's intended for us as God's image bearers, but we see Jesus... We see Jesus crowned in glory, sitting at the right hand of the Father until his enemies are put under his feet. God has not been silent to your suffering. 
God has not been silent to the trials of his people. He sent his son to bear that suffering. He is the founder of our salvation. And he is right now, through all of these things, bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Next week, we're going to begin in verse 10. And it says, For it is fitting that he for whom all things, for whom and by whom all things exist, look what he's doing, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder, your translation may say captain or author or whatever, founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. He's bringing sons to glory. So even now, as we endure all of these things, this story's not over. There is still a world to come. And he has subjected the world to come to Jesus. And we are co-heirs with Jesus if we have trusted in him and are united to him. Jesus ensures our position in the world to come for he has already completed his mission, been crowned with glory and honor and is sitting at the right hand of the Father. You with me? So what he's telling them in these verses, I know that you're suffering. I know that there's trial. I know that there's sin. I know that you're being persecuted for Christ's sake. Don't drift from Christ. Hold fast to your confession. He's going to say that over and over in Hebrews. Pay closer attention to what you've heard. He said it in chapter 2 at the beginning. Because Jesus is better than a life free of suffering. That's hard to hear, isn't it? Jesus is better. The world to come is better than the world that we currently inhabit. The new heaven and the new earth is infinitely better. In fact, Paul says more or less the same thing in Romans 8 when he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. ESV says to us. I think it's in us. Look at it. For the creation. Look what the creation is doing. Waits with eager longing for the revealing of the great new creation. No. The creation itself is waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Those are those in Christ. The writer of Hebrews is saying, hold firm to Christ. Don't drift from him. Why? Because he's better than peace and comfort in this world. He's better than a life without suffering and a life without trial in this world. He's better than whatever you're tempted to run to. Jesus right now is reigning over all. He has completed the mission that Adam failed. He's completed the covenant that you have failed. And he's done this on your behalf. And he's reigning right now. Look to him in the midst of your trial and your suffering and all of those things. Don't drift from him. Hold fast to him for he is better. He's bringing many sons to glory. There is a world to come and it's better than what you are enduring right now right now. It's better. That world is better than this one. Don't give up that one for this one. Jesus reigns over all and he's given you the world to come. That was God's intent from the beginning of creation. So to which world do you belong? In which world do you put your hope? Where do you find your treasure in this one or the next? Which kingdom are you living for? 
He's telling the Hebrews, don't turn from Christ. It's not worth it. Entrust yourself to him and live for Christ, not for this world or what you can do in this world or the alleviation of suffering in this world. It's not worth it. Don't turn from Christ. He has guaranteed you by grace through faith in him that he has secured your place. If you have been born again, you are co-heir with him. You are seated with him in heavenly places. The Bible says he has done this for you on your behalf. Don't drift from him. Don't turn from him just to have an easier life in this little fallen world. It's not worth it. I told him in the first service, I've told you all this before too. I tell all my stories a bunch of times. Just, I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. If you put a rope across this sanctuary and it represented eternity, most of y'all heard this before. That rope represented eternity. Your little 80, 90 years on this planet wouldn't even be a microscopic blip in that rope. It's not worth it. Entrust yourself to Christ. Live for Him. Follow Him by grace through faith. Walk in Him. And come alongside this creation that is eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Jesus Christ is better than whatever it is that we're tempted to turn to run after. There is a world to come, and only Christ, only the Son, has secured your place in it. Trust in Him. Give Him your heart and life, and follow Him until He calls you home. Let's pray. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. God, I don't know if I made it very clear, but I I pray that you would just use the word that we've read, that you would use the text of your scripture, and the Spirit would come and just apply that text to our hearts knowing that that Jesus is better, that Jesus has fulfilled your intent for a new heaven, a new earth, a restoration of creation the way it was intended to be in the garden where we will dwell with you for all eternity in perfect relationship, in a perfect creation. God, we look forward to that day. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray that you would show them the futility of chasing after anything in this life other than Christ. There is nothing more valuable, nothing worth more than Jesus. Help us to see him as we're continually bombarded with the vision of the things of this world and the trials of this world and the struggles of this world and all the things that go along with living in this fallen world and being fallen beings. God, we... We pray as we, that is continually flashed before our face day in and day out that we would see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, bringing many sons to glory. Oh God, you are better. God, I pray that you would save souls, that they would call out to you, trust in you, entrust their hearts to you, believing that you died for them on the cross, that you rose from the grave. And Father, help us just to be faithful. We do love you. We thank you for your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. As always, I'm going to stand right down here at the front. I'd love to talk to you. I'd love for you to come if you want to talk about the gospel. Will you stand with me?